0: And with that scented admonition floating in the air, Lady Sybil shook the housekeeper's hand and then turned to her son. "'Now, it's bed for you, young Sam. Straight after supper, and no arguing.' Vimes looked around as the little party stepped into the entrance hall, which was, to all intents and purposes, an armoury. It would always be an armoury in the eyes of any policeman, although undoubtedly, to the Ramkins who had put the swords, halberds, cutlasses, maces, pikes, and shields on every wall— The assemblage was no more than a bit of historical furniture. In the middle of it all was the enormous Ramkin coat of arms. Vimes already knew what the motto said, What we have, we keep. You could call it a hint. Soon afterwards, Lady Sybil was busy engaged in the huge laundry and ironing room, with purity the maid— whom Vimes had insisted she take on after the birth of young Sam, and who, both he and his wife believed, had an understanding with Willikins, although exactly what it was they understood remained speculation. The two women were engrossed in the feminine pastime of taking clothes out of some things and putting them into other things. This could go on for a long time, and included the ceremony of holding some things up to light and giving a sad little sigh. In the absence of anything else to do, Vimes headed back out to the magnificent flight of steps, where he lit a cigar. Sybil was adamant about no smoking in the house. A voice behind him said, "'You don't need to do that, sir. The hall has a rather good smoking room, including a clockwork air extractor, which is very posh, sir, believe me. You don't often see them.' Vimes let Willikins lead the way." It was a pretty good smoking room, thought Vimes, although his first-hand experience of them was admittedly limited. The room included a large snooker table, and, down below, a cellar with more alcohol than any reformed alcoholic should ever see. We did tell them I don't drink, didn't we, Willikins? Oh, yes, sir. Silver said that generally the hall finds it appropriate—I think his words were—to keep the cellar full in case of arrivals. Well— it seems to me to be a shame to pass up the opportunity, Willikins, so be my guest and pour yourself a drink. Willikins, perceptibly, uh, recoiled. Oh, no, sir, I couldn't possibly do that. Why not, man? It's just not done, sir. I would be in the laughing stock of the League of Gentlemen's Gentlemen if I was so impertinent as to have a drink with my employer. it would be getting ideas about my station, sir. This offended Vimes to his shakily egalitarian core. It was tricky— to Vimes all men were equal, but, well, obviously a sergeant wasn't as equal as a captain, and a captain wasn't as equal as a commander, and as for Corporal Nobby-Knobs, well, nobody could be the equal of Corporal Nobby-Knobs. He said, "'I know your station, Wilkins, and it's about the same station as mine when the chips are down and the wounds have healed.' "'Look, sir,' said Willikins, almost pleading, "'just occasionally we have to follow some rules.' So on this occasion I won't drink with you, it not being Hogswatch or the birth of an heir, which are accounted for under the rules, but instead I'll follow the acceptable alternative, which is to wait until you've gone to bed and drink half the bottle. Well, thought Vimes, we'll have our funny little ways, although some of Willikins would not be funny if he was angry with you in a dark alley.' but he brightened as he watched Willikins rummage through a well-stocked cocktail cabinet, meticulously dropping items into a glass shaker. Metal, in the circumstances, would not be appropriate or safe. It should not be possible to achieve the effects of alcohol in a drink without including alcohol, but among the skills that Willikins had learned, or possibly stolen, over the years was the ability to mix out of common household ingredients a totally soft drink that nevertheless had very nearly everything you wanted in alcohol. Tabasco, cucumber, ginger, and chili were all in there somewhere, and beyond that it was best not to ask too many questions. Drink gloriously in hand, Vimes leaned back and said, "'Staff okay, Willikins?' Willikins lowered his voice. "'Oh, they're skimming stuff off the top, sir, but nothing more than usual in my experience. Everyone sneaks something, it's the perk of the job and the way of the world.' Vimes smiled at Willikin's almost theatrically wooden expression, and said loudly for the hidden listener, "'A conscientious man, then, is he, Silver? I'm very glad to hear it.' "It "'Seems like a steady one to me, sir,' said the manservant, rolling his eyes towards heaven and pointing a finger to a small grill in the wall, the inlet to the fabled extractor, which no doubt needed a man behind the scenes to wind the clockwork, and would any butler worth his bulging stomach forego an opportunity to keep the tabs on what his new master was thinking?' would he hell? It was Perks, wasn't it? Of course people here would be on the take. You didn't need evidence, it was human nature. He had constantly suggested to Sybil, he wouldn't have dared insist, that the place be closed down and sold to somebody who really wanted to live in what he had heard was a creaking, freezing pile that could have housed a regiment. She would not hear of it, She had warm childhood memories of the place, she said, of climbing trees and swimming and fishing in the river and picking flowers and helping the gardeners and similar jolly rural enterprises that were, to Vimes, as remote as the moon, given that his adolescent preoccupations had had everything to do with just staying alive. You could fish in the river Ankh, providing you took care not to catch anything. In fact, it was amazing what you could catch by just letting one drop of the Ankh pass your lips. As for picnicking... Well, in Ankh-Morpork, when you were a kid, sometimes you nicked and sometimes you picked, mostly at scabs. It had been a long day, and last night's sleep in the inn had not been salubrious or restful, but before he got into the huge bed, Vimes opened a window and stared out at the night. The wind was murmuring in the trees. Vimes mildly disapproved of trees, but Sybil liked them, and that was that. Things that he didn't care to know about rustled, whooped, gibbered, and went inexplicably crazy in the darkness outside. He didn't know what they were, and hoped never to find out. What kind of noise was this for a man to go to sleep to? He joined his wife in the bed, thrashing around for some time before he found her, and settled down. She had instructed him to leave the window open to get some allegedly glorious fresh air, and Vimes lay there miserably, straining his ears for the reassuring noises of a drunk going home, or arguing with the sedan-chair owner about the vomit on the cushions, and the occasional street-fight, domestic disturbance, or even piercing scream, all punctuated at intervals by the chiming of the city clocks, no two of which famously ever agreed.' and the more subtle sounds, like the rumble of the honey-wagons as Harry King's night soil collectors went about the business of business. And best of all was the cry of the night watchman at the end of the street. Twelve o'clock, and all his will! It wasn't so long ago that any man trying this would have had his bell, helmet, and quite probably his boots stolen before the echoes had died away. But not any more, no, indeedy. This was the modern watch, Vimes's watch, and anyone who challenged the watchman on his rounds with malice aforethought would hear the whistle blow and very quickly learn that if anybody was going to be kicked around on the street, it wasn't going to be a watchman. The duty watchman always made a point of shouting the hour with theatrical clarity and amazing precision outside Number 1 Schoon Avenue so that the commander would hear it. Now Vimes stuck his head under an enormous pillow and tried not to hear the tremendous and disturbing lack of noise whose absence could wake a man up when he had learned to ignore a carefully timed sound every night for years. But at five o'clock in the morning Mother Nature pressed a button and the world went mad. Every blessed bird and animal, and by the sound of it alligator, vied with all the others to make itself heard. The cacophony took some time to get through to Vimes— The giant bed at least had an almost inexhaustible supply of pillows. Vimes was a great fan of pillows when away from his own bed. Not for him one or even two sad little bags of feathers as an afterthought to the bed, no. He liked pillows to burrow into and turn into some kind of soft fortress, leaving one hole for the oxygen supply. The awful racket was dying down by the time he drifted up the linen surface. Oh, yes, he recalled, that was another bloody thing about the country. It started too damned early. The commander was, by custom, necessity and inclination, a night-time man. Sometimes even an all-night man. Alien to him was the concept of two seven o'clocks in one day. On the other hand, he could smell bacon, and a moment later two nervous young ladies entered the room carrying trays on complex metallic things which, unfolded, made it almost but not totally impossible to sit up and eat the breakfast they contained. Vimes blinked. Things were looking up. Usually, Sybil considered it her wifely duty to see to it that her husband lived forever, and was convinced that this happy state of affairs could be achieved by feeding him bowel-scouring nuts and grains and yoghurt, which, to Vimes's mind, was a type of cheese that wasn't trying hard enough. Then there was the sad adulteration of his mid-morning bacon, lettuce, and tomato snack. It was amazing but true that in this matter the watchmen were prepared to obey the boss's wife to the letter, and, if the boss yelled and stamped, which was perfectly understandable, nay, forgivable, when a man was forbidden his mid-morning lump of charred pig, would refer him to the instructions given to them by his wife, and the certain knowledge that all threats of sacking were hollow, and if carried out would be immediately rescinded. Now Sybil appeared among the pillows and said, "'You're on holiday, dear.' What you could eat on holiday also included two fried eggs, just as he liked them, and a sausage, but not, unfortunately, the fried slice, which even on holiday was apparently still a sin. The coffee, however, was thick, black, and sweet. "'You slept very well,' said Sybil, as Vimes stared at the unexpected largesse. He said, "'No, I didn't, dear. Not a wink, I assure you. Sam, you were snoring all night, I heard you.' Vimes's grasp of successful husbandry prevented him from making any further comment except, Really? What idea? Oh, I am sorry. Sybil leafed through a small pile of pastel envelopes that had been inserted into her breakfast tray. Well, the news has got around, she said. The Duchess of Keepsakers invited us to a ball, Sir Henry and Lady Withering have invited us to a ball, and Lord and Lady Hangfinger have invited us to, yes, a ball. Well, said Vimes, that's a lot of— "'Don't you dare, Sam,' his wife warned, and Vimes finished lamely. "'Invitations? You know I don't dance, dear. I just shuffle about and tread on your feet.' "'Well, it's mainly for the young people, you see. People come for the therapeutic baths at on Rye, just down the road. Really, it's all about getting the daughters married to suitable gentlemen, and that means balls, almost continuous balls.' "'I can manage a waltz,' said Vimes.' That's just a matter of counting, but you know I can't stand all those jumping-about ones like Strip the Widow and the Gay Gordon. Don't worry, Sam. Most of the older men find a place to sit and smoke or take snuff. The mothers do the work of finding the eligible bachelors for their daughters. I just hope that my friend Ariadne will find suitable husbands for her girls. She has sex tuplets, very rare, you know. Of course, young Mavis is very devout, and there is invariably a young clergyman looking for a wife and, above all, a dowry— and Emily is petite, blonde, an excellent cook, but rather conscious of her enormous bosom. Vimes stared at the ceiling. I suspect that not only will she find a husband, he forecast, a husband will find her. Call it a man's intuition. And then there's Fleur, said Lady Sybil, not rising to the bait. She makes quite nice little bonnets, so I understand, and, uh, Amanda, I think, apparently quite interested in frogs, although I fear I may have misheard her mother.' She thought for a moment, and added, Oh, and then there's Jane, rather a strange girl, according to her mother, who doesn't seem to know what to make of her. Vimes's lack of interest in other people's children was limitless, but he could count. And the last one? Oh, Hermione, she may be difficult, as she has rather scandalised the family, at least in their opinion. How? She's a lumberjack. Vimes thought for a moment, and said, "'Well, dear, it is a truth universally accepted that a man with a lot of wood must be in want of a wife who can handle a great big—' Lady Sybil interrupted sharply. "'Sam, Vimes, I believe that you intended to make an indelicate remark.' "'I think you got there before me,' said Fymes, grinning. "'You generally do, dear, admit it. "'You may be right, dear,' she said, "'but that is only to forestall you from saying it aloud. "'After all, you are the Duke of Ankh, "'and widely regarded as Lord Vetinari's right-hand man.' And that means a certain amount of decorum would be advisable, don't you think? To a bachelor, this would have appeared to be gentle advice. To an experienced husband, it was a command, all the more powerful because it was made delicately. So, when Sir Samuel Vimes and Commander Vimes and His Grace the Duke of Ankh, not to mention Blackboard Monitor Vimes, a figure of note in dwarfish society, walked out after breakfast, they were all on their best behaviour. As it turned out, Other people weren't. There was a maid sweeping in the corridor outside the bedroom who took one frantic look at Vimes as he strolled towards her and turned her back on him, and remained staring fixedly at the wall. She appeared to be trembling with fear, and Vimes had learned that in these circumstances the last thing any man should do is ask a question, or, above all, offer to lend a helping hand. Screaming could result. She was probably just shy, he told himself but it seemed that shyness was catching. There were maids carrying trays or dusting or sweeping as he walked down through the building, and every time he came near one she turned her back crisply and stood staring at the wall as if her life depended on it. By the time he reached a long gallery lined with his wife's ancestors, Vimes had had enough, and when a young lady carrying a tea tray spun around like a dancer on the top of a musical box, he said, "'Excuse me, miss, am I as ugly as all that?' Well, that was surely better than asking her why she was so rude, wasn't it? So why in the name of any three gods did she start to run away, crockery rattling, as she headed down the hall? Among the various vimeses, it was the commander who took over. The duke would be too forbidding, and the blackboard monitor just wouldn't do the trick. Stop where you are! Put down your tray and turn around slowly! She skidded, she actually skidded, and turning with perfect grace while still clutching the tray, slowed gently to a stop where she stood, shaking with anxiety, as Vimes caught up with her and said, What's your name, miss? She answered while keeping her face turned away. Oh, Your Grace, I'm very sorry, Your Grace. The crockery was still rattling. Look, said Vimes, I can't think with all that rattling going on. Just put it down carefully, will you? Nothing bad is going to happen to you, but I'd like to see who I'm talking to, thank you very much. The face turned reluctantly towards him. There, he said. Miss, er... Hodges, what is the matter? You don't have to run away from me, surely. Please, sir! And with that the girl headed for the nearest green baize door and vanished through it. It was at this point that Vimes realised that there was another maid only a little way behind him, practically camouflaged by her dark uniform and facing the wall and, indeed, trembling. She was surely a witness to all that had happened, so he walked carefully towards her and said, I don't want you to say nothing— Just nod or shake your head when I ask you a question. Do you understand? There was a barely perceptible nod. Good. We make progress. Will you get into trouble if you say anything to me? Another microscopic nod. And is it likely that you'll get into trouble because I've talked to you? The maid, rather inventively, gave a shrug. And the other girl? Still with her back to him, the unseen girl stuck out her left hand with the thumb emphatically turned down. Thank you, said Vimes to the invisible informant. You've been very helpful. He walked thoughtfully back upstairs, through an avenue of turned backs, and was relieved to encounter Willikins in the laundry on the way. The batman did not turn his back on Vimes, which was a relief. Willikins was an excellent butler, and or gentleman's gentleman, when the occasion required it, but in a long career he had also been an enthusiastic street fighter, and knew enough never to turn his back on anybody who could possibly have a weapon on them. He was folding shirts with the care and attention he might otherwise have marshaled for the neat cutting off of a defeated opponent's ear. When the cuffs of his own spotlessly clean jacket slid up a little, you could just see part of the tattoos on his arms, but not, fortunately, spell out anything they said. Vimes said, "'Willikins, what are the whirling housemaids all about?' Willikins smiled. "'Old custom, sir. A reason to it, of course. There often is, if it sounds bloody stupid. No offence, Commander, but knowing you, I'd suggest that you let twirling housemaids spin until you've got the lie of the land, as it were. Besides, her ladyship and young Sam are in the nursery.' A few minutes later, Vimes, after a certain amount of trial and error, walked into what was, in a musty kind of way, a paradise. Vimes had never had much in the way of relatives— Not many people are anxious to let it be known that their distant ancestor was a regicide. All that, of course, was history, and it amazed the new Duke of Ankh that the history books now lauded the memory of old Stoneface, the watchman who executed the evil bastard on the throne and had suddenly struck a blow for freedom and law. History is what you make it, he had learned, and Lord Vetinari was a man with the access to and the keys of a whole range of persuasive mechanisms left over, as luck would have it from the regicide days, and currently still well oiled in the cellar. History is indeed what you make it, and Lord Vetinari could make it, anything he wanted. And thus the dreadful killer of kings was miraculously gone, never been there, you must be mistaken, never heard of him, no such person, and replaced with the heroic, if tragically misunderstood, slayer of tyrants, stone-faced vimes, the famous ancestor of the highly respected His Grace the Duke of Ankh, Commander Sir Samuel Vimes. History was a wonderful thing. It moved like the sea, and Vimes was taken at the flood. Vimes's family had lived a generation at a time. There had never been heirlooms, family jewels, embroidered samplers stitched by a long-dead aunt, no interesting old urns found in Granny's attic, which you hoped that the bright young man who knew all about antiques would tell you was worth a thousand dollars, so that you could burst with smugness. And there was absolutely no money, only a certain amount of unpaid debt. But here in the playroom, neatly stacked, were generations of toys and games, some of them a little worn from long usage, particularly the rocking horse Which was practically life size and had a real leather saddle with trappings made from, Vimes discovered to his incredulity by rubbing them with a finger, genuine silver. There was also a fort big enough for a kid to stand in and defend, and a variety of child size siege weapons to assault it, possibly with the help of boxes and boxes of lead soldiers, all painted in the correct regimental colours and in fine detail. For two Pins, Vimes would have got down on hands and knees and played with them there and then. There were modelled yachts and a teddy bear so big that for one horrible moment Vimes wondered whether it was the real one, stuffed. There were catapults and boomerangs and gliders, and in the middle of all this young Sam stood paralysed, almost in tears with the knowledge that no matter how hard he tried, he just couldn't play with everything all at once. It was a far cry from the Vimes childhood— and playing poo-sticks with real poo. While the apple of their eyes tentatively straddled the rocking horse, which had frighteningly big teeth, Vimes told his wife about the objectionable spinning housemaids. She simply shrugged, and said, "'It's what they do, dear. It's what they're used to.' "'How can you say that? It's so demeaning!' Lady Sybil had developed a totally calm and understanding tone of voice when dealing with her husband." "'That's because, technically speaking, they are demeaned. "'They spend a lot of time serving people who are a lot more important than they are. "'And you are right at the top of the list, dear.' "'But I don't think I'm more important than them,' Vimes snapped. "'I think I know what you're saying, and it does you credit. "'It really does,' said Sybil. "'But what you actually said was nonsense. "'You are a duke, a commander of City Watch, and—' "'She paused. "'A blackboard monitor,' said Vimes automatically. "'Yes, Sam.' the highest honour that the King of the Dwarfs can bestow. Sybil's eyes glittered. Blackboard monitor vimes, one who can erase the writings, somebody who can rub out what is there. That's you, Sam, and if you were killed, the chanceries of the world would be in uproar, and, Sam, regrettably they would not be perturbed at the death of a housemaid.' She held up her hand, because he'd opened his mouth and added, "'I know you would be, Sam, but wonderful girls, though I'm sure they are, "'I fear that if they were to die, a family, and perhaps a young man, "'would be inconsolable, and the rest of the world would never know. "'And you, Sam, know that is true. "'However, if you were ever murdered, dread the thought, "'and indeed I do every time you go out on duty, "'not only Ankh-Morpork, but the world would hear about it instantly.' "'Wars might start, and I suspect that veterinary's position "'might become a little dangerous. "'You are more important than girls in service. "'You are more important than anybody else in the watch. "'You are mistaking value for worth, I think.' "'She gave his worried face a brief kiss. "'Whatever you think you once were, Sam Vimes, "'you've risen, and you deserved to rise. "'You know the cream rises to the top. "'So does the scum,' "'said Vimes automatically, although he immediately regretted it. "'How dare you say that, Sam Vimes? "'You may have been a diamond in the rough, but you polished yourself up. "'And however you cut it, husband of mine, "'although you are no longer a man of the people, "'it certainly seems to me that you are a man for the people, "'and I think the people are far better off for that. "'Do you hear?' "'Young Sam looked up adoringly at his father "'while the rocking-horse rocked into a gallop. "'Between son and spouse, Vimes never had a chance.' He looked so crestfallen that Lady Sybil, as wives do, tried a little consolation. "'After all, Sam, you expect your men to get on with their duties, don't you? Likewise, the housekeeper expects the girls to get on with theirs.' "'That's quite different. Really it is. Coppers watch people, and I've never told them that they can't pass the time of day with somebody. After all, that somebody might provide useful information.' Vimes knew that this was technically true, but anybody who was seen giving anything more useful than the time of day to a policeman in most streets of the city would soon find a straw would be necessary to help him eat his meals. But the analogy was right anyway, he thought, or would have thought, had he been a man to whom the word analogy came easily. Just because you were a member of somebody's staff didn't mean you had to act like some kind of clockwork toy. Shall I tell you the reason for the spinning housemaid Sam, said Sybil? as young Sam cuddled the huge teddy bear who frightened him by growling. It was instituted in my grandfather's time at the behest of my grandmother. In those days we entertained all the time with scores of guests on some weekends. Of course, a number of these guests would be young men from very good families in the city, quite well educated and full of, shall I say, vim and vigour. Sybil glanced down at young Sam and was relieved to see that he was now lining up some small soldiers. The maids, on the other hand, in the very nature of things, are not well educated, and I'm ashamed to say might have been slightly too compliant in the face of people whom they had come to think of as their betters. She was starting to blush, and she pointed down at young Sam, who, she was glad to see, was still paying no attention. I'm sure you get the picture, Sam. Absolutely sure, and my grandmother, whom you would almost certainly have hated— had decent instincts, and therefore decreed that all the housemaids should not only refrain from talking to the male guests, but should not make eye contact with them either, on pain of dismissal. You might say she was being cruel to be kind, but not all that cruel, come to think of it. In the fullness of time, the housemaids would leave the hall with good references, and not be embarrassed about wearing a white dress on their wedding day. "'But I'm happily married,' Vimes protested, "'and I can't imagine Willikins risking the wrath of purity either.' Yes, dear, and I'll have a word with Mrs. Silver. But this is the country, Sam. We do things a little more slowly here. Now, why don't you take young Sam out to see the river? Take Willikins with you. He knows his way round.